0: The no not make show Flash moments for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from a leech, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion and this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize, labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show.
1: Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Const. It is Friday, June 4th, it is Fun Friday. Oh yeah, you've been waiting for it, I know. Oh boy, all right. Uh, even though it's been Fem Friday, I'm gonna talk about the boys a little bit because uh, the boys of Twitter and the Billionaire Boys Club, uh, that's what I'm calling them now. Uh, Elon Musk, of course, Is he? St- I, I know he was briefly the world's richest man. I, I assume he still is after a few months. Uh, Elon Musk and uh, Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, have some some feels about cryptocurrency Bitcoin. I have a lot of feels about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, too. So let's let's start off with uh, what Elon Musk is thinking about Bitcoin right now. Let's 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 play that because he's he was all about Bitcoin on SNL like a month ago. Let's play what's happening now. Does Elon Musk, is he breaking up with Bitcoin? What does that mean for his holdings? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I never thought I'd be on television trying to parse through Linkin Park lyrics uh, from an Elon Musk tweet. Uh, so, you know, if you got that on your bingo card. Um, but, uh, you know, we're certainly seeing a drop in Bitcoin today. It's down uh, almost $2,000 at the moment to under 37000 Uh Musk uh, has not explicitly said if he's uh, selling any of his uh, holdings in Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. So we really can't say for sure. Um, but um, once again, we're uh, trying to parse through some, as you say, cryptic tweets from Musk. And uh, it's becoming a bit of a habit of his uh, where he's uh, tweeting over the last couple of months and the market. Uh, invariably listens and uh, certainly for a lot of investors has ruffled a lot of feathers if you take a look at some of the replies to his tweets uh, there's a lot of pretty annoyed or upset uh, crypto investors out there Um, so maybe they're uh, looking to break up with him at this point Mm.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I will leave the passing of the Linkin Park uh, lyrics to others. I, I won't pretend to understand all of that, Eric. But the broken heart, I can understand. But how unnerving is this for crypto investors then, given that they've been, they maybe will feel as if they've been let down by Musk in the past, after he came to the realization that maybe Bitcoin wasn't great for the environment. And that led to all the volatility over the last couple of weeks or so. That and Chinese regulation. So how unnerved should crypto investors be about this?
2: Yeah, certainly. I think it's been a bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, You know, when he was tweeting about how great uh, Dogecoin was and cryptos were, uh, you know, they were welcoming that kind of disruption in the industry and uh, the price was surging accordingly. But now that it's at the other end where his tweets are actually uh, moving markets on the downside, I think it's a lot less welcome. And some of that enthusiasm has turned quickly to scorn. I think uh, it's uh, encapsulating the continued volatility and the continued uncertainty in investing in this space. But the fact that you now have an individual who's able to move markets to this degree by a single tweet uh, certainly raises fresh questions about the interest for institutional investors, for instance, in Mm. actually holding assets in something like this.
1: So this is like the future of the economy, right? Somebody can tweet something, and we've already learned this lesson through Elon Musk and many others, and they can move Move financial markets, uh, or in this case, you know, Bitcoin or Doge Doge coin or whatever the hell the next version is. Um, I'm joking, but I'm actually pretty familiar with this. It, it, this is somebody who, through the power of his Twitter account, can move markets, move policy, move politics, move people, move investors, move people to invest in his companies, invest in uh, in in Bitcoin or others, or vice versa. And you know this is this is at a moment where the cryptocurrency has probably faced the most opposition, given the fact that it's many have been devalued uh, at, at a radical pace, mainly because they're not regulated. They're not. They're, this is a very big topic, but um, I bring this up. Let, let's let's show this uh, Jack Dorsey tweet because Jack Dorsey, you know, this is they're using Twitter as the platform to move these things, and then of course the founder of of Twitter has his own thoughts. I'm sitting in Puerto Rico and I I bring this up because a few years ago when we were covering uh, after Maria, after Hurricane Maria, we were down here covering uh, just the effects of the storm. We saw, and and this has been reported on extensively now, but there was a a group of cryptocurrency investors, and it's been going on for a while in Puerto Rico because of the capital gains tax um, incentives here. Uh, But a a, a newer version, a younger version of the capital gains uh, cryptocurrency folks uh, started to come down here and invest in properties and use cryptocurrency to build their businesses. And they bought up or rented some properties and created conferences to attract more cryptocurrency investors. Um, specifically from sp- specific cryptocurrencies uh, there's like factions within the crypto world uh, and and you know they started buying up property and some of them uh, like uh, like Brock Pierce for instance who ran for president in 2020 uh, he became kind of one of these little you know cryptocurrency uh, thought leaders where not only were they buying properties and holding conferences and attracting people uh, to come down they were really trying to bring them the, the burning man crowd the burning man uh Crypto crowd to come down here and and invest and using uh, the effects of Maria, the 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 pain that people were going through with Maria, to advise folks. You can come down here and create a solar company, or you can come down here and you can um, uh, build you know build uh, a new business to help employ Puerto Ricans. And so they're really trying to appeal to a social you know, a socially progressive-ish crypto community that was working with, um, you know, within the Burning Man community because it was intrinsically, you know, connected. And uh, they came down here for the tax incentives. And uh, that, in that case in particular, um, they overlapped with the larger cryptocurrency world. Uh, and then essentially that fell, it, it blew, blossomed into the, you uh, influencer world. And so that's how you get the Jake Pauls uh, coming down here and and buying properties for $10 million for capital gains tax purposes. So why am I talking about this, right? I'm talking about it not just for the sake of crypto, which is an unregulated, you know, it's like the new plastics, if you know what I'm talking about from the 80s. Um, When something moves that quickly and it goes without regulation, it's, it's hard to kind of conceptualize how fast it's moving and why it's moving in a, d- a certain direction and how dangerous it is. Um, so now markets are obviously, the Fed is, is, has been for a while trying to fight back uh, and regulate crypto because, you know, there are a lot of people who are concerned about the environmental impacts of mining for crypto. Um, but simultaneously, just how unstable it is and simultaneously how, you know, certain, uh monies can be moved through crypto. I'm not saying all, but you know there's a lot of money from foreign governments, from oligarchs, from uh, cartels, etc that uh, use crypto to to move you know to move their money. Uh, so and then and then they do things like invest in property through crypto. So it becomes a tangible um, a tangible asset. And it affects real economies like Puerto Rico. This is a beautiful example of how, all of these things get looped in and then affect an actual economy. And if these cryptocurrency, if, if, if suddenly the crypto community here <laughs> loses all their money, how does that impact in a very basic way? How does that impact the economy of Puerto Rico, which is already dire? And how does that impact Detroit? How does that impact Buffalo? How does that impact any place right now which is uh, incentivizing through tax incentives? How does it impact in a place where all these crypto folks are, are moving to because of the tax breaks? How does it change those communities? And these are the bigger questions because it's moving at such a rapid pace that we should be asking. I'm not saying I have the solutions. I know there are a lot of people who watch our show who probably invest in crypto. i these are the questions that we should be asking because it's happening so rapidly. And simultaneously through these platforms, which we talk about all the time on the show, they're influencing how, <laughs> how popular... Uh, One cryptocurrency is over another, but the thing that is tangible here, the thing that does not move as fast is the environmental impact, which is essentially affecting the real life material uh, value of crypto. Why the supply chain has been affected? Because of the mining, because of the pandemic, because the mining has been affected by the pandemic, but simultaneously the mining is bad for the environment. People knew this, uh, they can sugarcoat it by buying all the solar panel companies, investing in all the solar panel companies that they want. They can do all of these things to greenwash, modern-day greenwashing, like real modern-day greenwashing. It's, but but simultaneously, the mining is what's bad for the environment. It's why it's it, it's like the new version of uh, fracking. You know, it's a transition, but it's still really bad for the environment. So these are the conversations that we should be having, like, how is it that Elon Musk's Twitter account can affect an industry? It can in fact affect a market, him going on, on uh, you know, Saturday Night Live, like not even a month ago and, and really pushing crypto and now suddenly like, oh, I'm scaling back because at the end of the day, he is as ruled by the markets as anybody else is in crypto. And that I think is the important point. They market themselves as being completely uh, separate from traditional market, but they are dependent on it. So with that, uh, we have a wonderful show today. We have Alex Presson to talk about, oh, this is really interesting. How AFL-CIO, yes, this is a very large union, uh, consortium of unions, I should say, has a lot of catching up to do on police reform. Super interesting story uh, Alex wrote in Jacobin. And then later we have Francesca Fiorentini. We're gonna talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh, This is Femme Friday. You're watching the Nomi Key Show. We'll be right back. Hello, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Oh boy, all right. Uh, we love to talk unions on the show. It's Femme Friday, uh, very important part of the show. This piece, I think, was so brilliantly done. Um, Alex Press is a staff writer at Jacobin, uh, and she wrote a piece called, On Police Reform, the AFL-CIO CIO has a lot of catching up to do. And what this highlighted to me in a very... Uh, very way was just some of the dynamics internally of unions that we love to talk about, but you know, are not as perfect as, as, as we would like them to be. Alex, thanks for joining. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Alex, um, I guess we'll just start off with this. I, what, what, ins- what inspired you? What uh, intrigued you about the FLCIO's CIO's positioning on police reform? Well, I write about labor all the time, right? So
3: this is definitely, uh, you know, on my beat. Um, But, you know, part of this came a year ago at the height of the protests following George Floyd's murder. Um, You know, there were protests everywhere, including in DC and the AFL-CIO's headquarters actually was set on fire, Um, which, you know, who knows what the thinking was behind the people who did it, but it sort of was this moment of, you know, the AFL-CIO does need to take a position about policing. Um, You know, organized labor is the sort of key force in a lot of ways for fighting oppression and exploitation, but it also is a complicated thing in that the AFL-CIO has unions inside of it as a federation that represent police officers, also ICE agents, you know, so it's it's a tension and it's something that unions really haven't resolved. And so the AFL-CIO said that they would, you know, form a task force and come up with sort of a vision Um, for reforming policing and they did that almost a year ago and so this report came out a couple weeks ago that was the sort of the product of all of that planning and thought Um, and that that report yeah was published two weeks ago um, is called the public safety blueprint for change Um, and I was just interested in how the AFL-CIO is sort of taking a stand here because there's been pressure for them to kick out these police unions from the Federation. There's been all sorts of demands from different unions inside the Federation and outside. Um, And so this is sort of like their big statement about what they're gonna do.
1: Um, For folks who may not be as familiar, what unions are in the Federation? What's the makeup here?
3: Yeah, so the Um, AFL-CIO is the largest labor federation in the United States, and it's got about 12 million members. So this is, you know, I think a lot of us who maybe aren't so active in the labor movement, we talk about the left this and the left that, but usually we're talking about organizations in the hundreds or thousands as far as the numbers of members. Unions, you know, as much as they've declined in the United States are still millions of people. So this is a very powerful organization, right? Um, and so there's, you know, all sorts of unions inside of it. The sort of notable thing about this task force and the report they produced is that every union represented has police officers inside of it. Um, so these are not, you know, there's only one union in the AFL-CIO that is just police officers but other unions represent police officers as part of the many types of workers they represent. Um, so- Explain
1: that a little bit more. So so how, how does that work? Um, what do you mean like are there teachers that are police officers what, what?
3: no i mean that like for example the teamsters has local unions inside of it that include police officers seiu you know similarly you might think of seiu as like hotel workers or janitors and that's true but there's many different unions inside of an international union right locals have various members that do various kinds of jobs um, so for example the union i'm in the news guild is all journalists Um, But a lot of unions have a variety of types of workers inside of them. Um, And so that's what I mean when I say that there are police officers inside. it. Not that like journalists are also cops or something, but rather that a local doesn't (laughs) just have, as far as we know, right. Some of them. Um, (laughs) Not (laughs) officially. Right, right. Just just for fun, voluntarily. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so that's what I mean. So, you know, the first thing worth noting here is that the AFL-CIO decided that they would have you know, the people producing this report about policing be police officers rather than say the other kinds of workers in the AFL-CIO who are on the receiving end of uh, police violence. So that in itself, I think is a very uh, important choice and one that I disagree with, but is reflective of where the AFL-CIO's leadership is
1: at on this question is that so, they sort so, of, yeah, go ahead. Just just for audiences, um, just for clarity. So just when you say things like there's, there's police officers within a union that may not be a police union. I'm gonna throw back a little bit for our audience. We did an episode a few weeks ago where we were talking about how there are more employed um, officers in New York City that work for the universities uh, than for the actual police force, which is jarring because New York is actually like all cops. Yeah, that, I mean, the New York a, a police, example.
3: yeah, the yeah. New York local is, for example, is not in the AFL-CIO, because right. the, the police generally are in independent unions called police right. benevolent associations. And so that's what the NYPD, it's, I think, the New York Benevolent Association. But you're right yes. that then, you know, cops are working as private security guards and so on, right? In which case, they will sometimes be members of other unions.
1: And they're not regulated by the same, yeah. So there's, there's if for folks watching, you can go back and yeah. watch that. Um Okay, so in and and this is insane. So they they decide to put together this this uh, you know investigation, whatever you want to call it. A, a, a and and they are all people who have interest in in these issues. Um, is there pushback internally? What's, what are the political dynamics happening now? Uh, as a result. I mean, it's been a year, like what's that old rule? If you want something to go away, just put it in a committee and like delay it forever. (laughs) Exactly, I mean, that's what
3: this report reads as, like I describe it as verging on fantasy and it very much is sort of, you can imagine like an institution saying like, we we hear you, we see you um, and we're gonna study this very seriously. You know, the state does this all the time. They put things in committee exactly as you're saying. Um, And so, I mean, there's been pushback, this is not a new issue, but certainly in the past year after the George Floyd uprising, There's been renewed calls. And so some of these calls are, again, coming from inside the AFL-CIO. So certain unions have passed resolutions calling for them to disaffiliate from, for example, the International Union of Police Associations, the IUPA, which is an all police union, that's part of the AFL-CIO. Um, And, you know, so this report has come out now, it came out a few weeks ago, and there's totally criticism. It's not just myself. Um, It's, you know, there is the first person to write about this who got a leaked version of the report before it was published was Hamilton Nolan at In These Times. And he, you know, is a member of a union that has passed a resolution calling for them to, you know, kick out these police unions. And so, yeah, people are critical. I mean, he was very critical of this report. Um, And I think a, a lot of people, you know, whether they're formally in unions or not, are you know the people on the streets protesting? Many of them are workers, right? It's majority probably workers, and so I think they would take big issue with the idea that, you know, workers' voice is boiled down to what the police unions have to say, and that they're sort of being given this, you know, sort of speaking for the largest labor federation as if everybody involved in labor agrees with you know police leading the charge for reform.
1: Certainly, people do not agree with that. Which unions are uh, coming out? pushing back?
3: Well, no unions have made formal statements, as far as I know, about this report. Um, But it takes, I mean, it completely takes issue with all of the resolutions that have passed or been made about kicking the police out of the AFL-CIO or other things, you know, sort of having codes that would keep them outside of local labor councils, things like that. Um, But just for people to get a sense of it. So this report was led by the United Steelworkers Vice President Fred Raymond, so that's one of the unions involved in this, and then the AFL-CIO's Secretary Treasurer Liz Schuler, and that's the Federation's number two position, right? So this is really being given sort of the blessing of, you know, the top leadership of the AFL-CIO. Okay, um, so I want to get very, back to that in a second,
1: yeah, but, and but, there's, but oh, go the ahead. factions internally, I'm sorry, I'm obsessed with the factions. <laughs> sure, sure. So the factions, like report or not, official comment or not, who are the which are the unions within the, the Federation that are pushing back? And which are the unions that are like complacent or or leading the charge, you know, in, in protecting, you know, the the police aspect of it? Sure. Them?
3: I mean, the reason I can't give you a good answer is the stuff is very, you know, there's serious discipline in the labor movement, we don't just talk about this stuff publicly right you deal with your problems internally which I you know I wish the left did more of that as well. Um, But so I mean so there's division inside of unions right like I mentioned Hamilton Nolan's Union, which is the writers Guild of America East. Um, So they formally passed a resolution that disagrees with you know the sort of vision being laid out here. Um, and there's certainly progressive locals within inside some of these big unions um, that also disagree with this, but there's no formalized kind of statements, right? This is just about, you know, there are people in every union that disagree with this and there are people who agree with this. And so it's an ongoing fight, right? Imagine like your workplace, you know, there are some people who are, you know, sort of have certain left leaning views on police and maybe someone else, you know, their dad is a cop and they love the cops. So that's what it's like. But at the level of millions of people, right? So there's internal division here, and it's an ongoing fight, which is what makes this report useful. And that it's sort of, a it's a public version of one side of that fight.
1: So uh, there are rumors that uh, Liz Schuler is one of the frontrunners to. Uh, th- okay, elections. Let's just let's just go through that. What what are when when are the next elections? And I know Liz Shuler is like one of the front runners that's being thrown out there. Yeah. Um, what's the significance of that?
3: So the AFL-CIO presidency is currently held by a guy named Richard Trumka. Um, and he's had it for a while and the AFL-CIO kind of famously has long serving presidents, it's not particularly prone to succession, um, especially when it first formed, you know, people would serve for almost for life, you know, as president of the AFL CIO. But Trumpka is going to be leaving soon. And so there's sort of internal questions about who's going to succeed him, right, as the head of this Federation. Liz Schuller is one of the people that's sort of like primed to succeed him. She's already the second in command. Also, she is a woman, and a lot of people in the in the AFL CIO want a woman as president of the AFL CIO. So that also helps the challenger to this, who has not formally said she is, you know, seeking the position, is the um, is her name is Sarah Nelson, um, and she's the president of AFACWA, which is the Flight Attendance Association. It's the big union, and she's sort of been this for the United States in the 21st century a surprisingly visible labor leader because she's very outspoken right and and also just very good with media and I think willing to take stands that a lot of labor leaders at least in recent years are not um, so she sort of rose to prominence when she threatened a general strike against Trump um, said she would shut down the airlines um, and he very quickly backed off of his plan to sort of you know have a government shut down like a fight going on um, and Sarah is very you know she is a progressive, labor leader as she takes unpopular stands, you know, pro universal healthcare, things like that outwardly a feminist. Um, And so a lot of people on the left of the labor movement want her to be the new head of the AFL-CIO. And what that means is very unclear what it would mean for her to be present, but it would be an experiment, right? Someone who's willing to take a stand and take things in a very different direction. It would be hard for me to imagine this report being produced under a Sarah Nelson AFL-CIO, for example.
1: Extremely hard. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Uh, full disclosure. I mean, she's she's uh, one of our advisors for Matriarch, so we love her, um, cool. and she's on the show all the time, so we talk about her. So okay, okay, uh, good to know. With that being said, though, it's it's no. I mean, this is more for the more <laughs> like on the record, so it doesn't come back and bite me in the ass. Mm-hmm. Um, with that being said though, in, in terms of the dynamics, like what, what is the, I mean, I, so much as you said of, of what's happening internally is confusing for most people, but you know, you cover this beat very well. And so what are like, like I could tell you what percentage of the democratic party was leaning towards a more progressive reformist, maybe not Bernie, but like reformer versus, you know, institutional Democrats. I could tell you that percentage. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean the elections are going to line up the same way, but it means that like there's an appetite for shifting things around. Yeah. So, within the AFL-CIO, is there a sense of what percentage is ready for a new a new AFL-CIO, uh, a little bit more progressive in terms of 2021 politics? Whether that's recognizing you know racial justice issues or um, issues involving the Green New Deal, which are obviously extremely complicated in the union space. Um, but not necessarily in the electoral lines. Like, is mm-hmm. can you Do you have a sense of that breakdown?
3: Yeah, I mean, no, not a particular sense. It's not like there's sort of internal polling or something, right? I mean, you can sort of look at what unions back Medicare for all, what unions backed Bernie's campaign, for example, to get a sense of who, you know, is willing to publicly take a stand, which is a very big distinction, right? Because there's this, like I said, discipline in the labor movement. And so you can have people who are sort of privately interested in a more progressive vision of labor, but it doesn't really mean much until they're willing to take a public stand and actually, you know, back someone who's a challenger. Um, And so in that sense, you know, it's still a minority of the labor movement officialdom that is sort of openly left-leaning, but that doesn't mean that the rank and file of labor unions is wedded to a conservative vision of labor, right? Um, And that's sort of the tension of socialists in the United States is how do you sort of build those elements and strengthen the opposition and the people who sort of want to push on this stuff. And so, I mean, when you see the energy in, for example, the protests around George Floyd, you see, again, a lot of working class people who are out on the streets and outraged and demanding a different country and a different society. And again, those people, many of them are union members. And so in that sense, you know, the energy is with this change, right? I mean, that is the vision that people on the left are articulating is that you know, labor can continue to decline, and it will if it doesn't change, or it can actually try something different and it can actually, you know, sort of lead and lead in the fight against oppression and lead in the fight against exploitation. Um, And so it's, yeah, it's a war, but there's certainly, you know, a small but very vocal minority that is trying to build that um, opposition. And that comes out in criticism of this report. It comes out in support for someone like Sarah Nelson, also comes out in, you know, the union efforts to support Black Lives Matter or something like that, right? Um, and so, but it's an ongoing fight. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. But I mean, when we saw stuff like the teacher strikes a couple of years ago, you know, that in itself had very progressive elements to it. You know, it was sort of looking out for the whole community, not just the workers. And when you see things like that, you can safely assume that there's yeah a left leaning group inside of this union in this fight.
1: Um. Before you go, how much of of the labor movement has shifted in terms of demographics? I mean, when you say things like talking about Black Lives Matter, I immediately think, well, of course, I mean, the majority of workers in this country are people of color and and so many of our frontline workers in the last couple of years since the pandemic every year. are women, and so, but but, but when, when we talk about like the labor movement, there, there's so much like white hard hat kind of totally. man energy coming there. Right. So, but like, what's the reality? What's what is it actually? Has it has it shifted? Have the demographics of the labor movement and and the federation in particular shifted mm-hmm. at all or enough to push this progress in the last you know couple of decades? Yeah, I mean, there's totally been a shift,
3: right? Like the, the largest sector as far as growing jobs is healthcare and service jobs, right? So, and we know that these are majority you know, di- women of color. Um, it's not the white guys in hard hats. So there has been a shift that is the working class. When someone like me refers to the working class, we're referring to all of those people, not just, you know, sort of I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm not just referring to, you know, retired steel workers, for example, um, like white guys here. Um, but that said, you know, it's not just a demographic story. So, you know, when you have this left-leaning project that we've been building in the labor movement for the past few years, especially, you know, you can have shifts even among traditionally kind of white guy unions. So, you know, the, one of the most sort of forward thinking out there in front of left-wing demands unions is the painter's union, which is part of the building trades, you know, the the white guys and hard hat construction workers. And they have been very active in supporting Black Lives Matter, pushing for the Pro Act, a labor law reform bill, so on and so forth. So, you know, I think it's worth reiterating that you know, even the white guys in hard hats, if they're pushed, they can also, you know, back these, these progressive and anti-racist demands. And that's important to keep in mind because it means that, you know, you aren't just waiting for a demographic shift, but you have to do organizing to get there. You know,
1: funny thing happens when you're taught about, uh, militancy within a union, solidarity is a real thing. And that might even be solidarity with people that like, don't look like you and sound like you and weren't raised in the same community as you. Exactly. i just, just saying that. <laughs> Alex Press, thank you so much for joining us. This is a really interesting conversation. I would love to continue it. I feel like, <laughs> you know, that people, we talk about labor a lot on that, but it, the, understanding that the, like the nuances and the, sure. the, the little details is, is super important because that's kind of where it all lies in the end. Yeah. So Well, thank, thank you so
3: much for having me. I'm happy to come back sometime. Awesome.
1: Go check out Alex Press at Jacobin, or many places, but uh, she's a staff writer at Jacobin. And her piece is on police reform in the FLCO, which has a lot of catching up to do. Great piece, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Miki. We'll be right back with Francesca Fiorentini. We're gonna talk about all the stuff that's happening right now. All right, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. You guys know we love our CBD, not all CBD, we just like Sunset Lake CBD because I once bought some Bodega CBD and it was a waste of my money and it didn't do anything. Uh, I was told CBD would help me with my migraines. I bought this Bodega CBD and it was crap. And then Sam Cedar kept saying, No, 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 I use Sunset Lake CBD. It's the best, it helps me sleep at night. And I was like, Well, whatever. And then I tried it and he was right. And he's always right. And that's Part of the complexity of Sam Cedar is that he's always right. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. It is a farm that they stole, no they didn't, uh, from the Ben & Jerry's farm. It was a Ben & Jerry's farm uh, and they turned it into a premium hemp farm diversifying it. Uh, And not only that, these people are so smart that they came up with a business model that not only enhances rural communities and creates meaningful employment in their community in Vermont, their minimum wage is $15 an hour. Hear that, Kristen Sinema? Uh, And the employees own the majority of the company. And on top of all that, they support independent media like our show, The Majority Report, and David Pakman Show. And they keep coming out with new products like the CBD Dog Biscuits, which you can eat uh, I don't know if Sam Cedar's right about this because he did eat the dog biscuits. So he's not always right. I wouldn't eat the dog biscuits, but I'm sure they're delicious. It's peanut butter, pumpkin, and flour. That's all that's in them. So if you are into bonding with your dog, <laughs> there's the way. Take a bite, dog could bite out of your mouth. It's like, you know, you can have a whole thing happening. I guess during COVID, people got lonely. Um, you can share your dog biscuits <laughs> with your dog. Uh, but I like to use a tincture. It helps me sleep at night. I like to use a salve because I have aches and pains, and that's part of the joy of having CBD products. So many CBD pro- products is that, you know, you can deal with all these issues. They've got chocolate, they've got gummies, they've got salve, they've got hemp. Uh, Dorsey smoked some hemp on air the other day. Uh, tinctures, have I left out other stuff? I'm sure I have, but you I can go to- The
4: t- gummies.
1: The gummies, where, where are you? I'm not even, I'm, I'm looking at my script. I'm not even looking, I didn't even know you were on air. <laughs>
2: Well, here I am
1: you're so quiet what do what you funny. what do you what are you doing now Dorse Do I, <laughs>
2: uh, I do it all man uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm like you know sticking to the gummy tincture routine and then
1: having a little bit of smoke every once in a while and enjoying that a bit more we uh, <laughs> we enjoyed one in the uh, living room watching TV last night you know my, my partner was like hey let's spark one of those up and we did and it was kind of nice uh so you know just trying a little bit of everything little. A little bit of uh, more on the gummy end of things, so I'm like I'm
2: t- down to my last one and a half, I think, or something. They're
1: on sale right now. Go <laughs> yeah, online. Thirty five. Use off. my
2: uh, my code Nomi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> go check it out. Okay, you too can go online and get a discount on your CBD products at SunsetLakeCBD.com. SunsetLakeCBD.com. You will get twenty percent off of your order if you type in know me, that's Nomi. That's N O M I. Hear that, Starbucks employees? It's N-O-M-I. It is not foamy. It is not Naomi. It is not schnomy. It's not get to know me. It is is no me, N-O-M-I. So type that in and you get a reward for spelling it properly, 20% off.
4: Francesca Fiorentini with a fresh Sh- haircut. Look- Shnomi! Shnomi, get to know me. I feel like a like a street rapper trying to get like five bucks off you. One time a dude on like off of Bleecker Street came up to me and he was like, he was like, yo, I'm gonna just like spit a rhyme. Whatever your name is, I'm gonna spit a rhyme. I don't know if anyone's ever done is. that to you, right? Yes, I think I know who this is. <laughs> you know this person. Okay, this was years Maybe ago, and year he one. was like Francesca, Francesca, a uh, nice chest there you got, Francesca. And I was like, oh buddy, you lost me. Oh buddy, I, I respect the hustle always, but gotta
1: work a little harder. Yes. <laughs> well, to be fair, he's a man. That's where. If if they're like like, I think that's why rap was so misogynist in the, in the early days, is because they it was, it's so impulsive and it was like mostly men, and they're just sure. like, oh, what comes first? Oh yeah.
4: <laughs> bitches is a Indeed, indeed. Uh shout happy out Femme to Friday. all the awesome female rappers out there. Yes, happy Friday, nomi Fem Friday specifically. Fem Friday. Friday. Fem yeah. Friday. Love in happy the hair. Also
1: congratulations on your engagement. oh I haven't thank said it you. in person.
4: Yes. Thanks so much.
1: So, um really important on this note. Let's let's talk about how Uh, online disinformation is attacking and targeting women in politics. Are we surprised by this? This is a New York Times breaking news. Women in politics are getting harassed more than men. The fact that these stories even have to come out, um, but the the reality is is they have, I'm glad that they've been like looking into a little bit more uh, fake news and real threats, how online abuse holds back women in politics. Um, Yeah. And this is like, you know, this is simultaneously happening while while, while there are these like fake, what are they called? Where they're, they're, they're videos and you think that they're real of the person saying things and doing things and it's not, what is that called? Someone's got the answer for that somewhere. Um, yeah, so this is, I'm not surprised by this and I'm, I'm partly ex- like frustrated that the New York Times even has to cover this and like make it sound like it's some sort of revelatory, you know, investigation and if if it wasn't just like in their normal uh uh reporting maybe people would be more aware of it but i don't know i mean
4: what are your thoughts on (laughs) all of it yeah i mean what's it's definitely not surprising uh that there would be more targeted hate towards women who speak out on politics explicitly obviously we know this we live in under patriarchy we live in a sexist society And of course that expert voices are more often listened to if they're male voices. So women have to claw and work, you know, 10 to 20 to 30 times harder, you know, to prove that we're not thinking with our uteruses at all times. Um, But yeah, I think you have to claw to be taken seriously. So of course people try and tear you down. Early YouTube and continued to be YouTube is like this. It's like, why aren't you in the kitchen making me a sandwich and you're like, um, because your mom does that in where you live, you know? Like that's, so it's, it's not new. I think the interesting part, and I haven't read this full article, but is how dark it gets and how so much of the misinformation and the sort of shadowy, um, like the online message boards, whether it's 4chan, 8chan, that eventually egged on and led to things like mass murders to things like the QAnon conspiracy theory. A lot of that has its roots in the Gamergate, um, you know, misogynistic attacks against female gamers, right? And anyone who would dare critique the gaming industry for being misogynist. So that I think, and those women were were blowing the whistle on this stuff years before Trump got elected. And then Trump gets elected. And especially for women online, they're like, oh, we're not surprised by that at all. This stuff has been festering misogyny, pickup artistry to like white supremacy, Holocaust denialism, like all this stuff has been festering. This is just a different tab on people's windows. I love how you say that a different tab on
1: people's windows, but it's it's not like accidental. It's also intentional there. There are people who have vested interests in keeping these spaces operating within these, they realize that that the, the, the communities of Gamergate, the, the core community of Gamergate is a great business model to be grown upon into an algorithm. And oh, oh suddenly it's a political movement. And so it's a base for a political movement. And then you see all across the world, the roots of so much of the far right and so much of, of how, um, the misinformation is spread through, you know, the the, the algorithm fixes or um, or just straight up like ad buys targeted certain people, it is rooted in in these folks. And, you know, we talked about, we've talked about this before on the show, we've talked about it offline. I think what concerns me the most, other than just the fact that like the online space is egregiously worse than like watching Fox News. And I, I don't think people really have process that yet like when the top 10 shows on facebook are three right-wing guys and the audiences are majority male you know at least fox news has like a woman's show (laughs) and at least they
4: have like half of an audience of women but they have to name it as like outnumbered this is scary (laughs) exactly it's scary to be surrounded by women you're right at least they're naming that like men get scared when women (laughs) talk politics (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's like, I'm not holding that as the model, but like it,
1: that in our minds is bad. This is way worse. This is a, this is, this is a, uh, a patriarchy. It's the dream of the patriarchy. Um, and so I, I say this because there are folks who understand that the, the future of Republican, of the Republican party, and simultaneously parts of the Democratic party are beholden to this root demographic, these crazies. When you have people like Marjorie Taylor Green, who's just a prop for the cuckoo right wing, let's say Matt Gates, right? The Matt Gates right wing is holding the Republican Party hostage. And then you have Kirsten Cinema obsessed with the idea of bipartisanship. Kirsten Cinema, you're partnering with Matt Gates, which is essentially partnering with QAnon, which is essentially partnering with these Gamergate people. That's a slippery slope here, but Bottom line is Steve Bannon helped facilitate so much of this with Donald Trump and globally based on this misogyny. And, you know, the new George Bush is now partnering with Steve Bannon's Donald Trump to get elected. So it's not as slippery as we think it is, right?
4: Yeah, and I think what's scary is that when, you know, again, New York Times runs an article like this. And they're like surprised rather than going to the source of like, this is cultivated. This is, you know, there there are confirmed attacks and the same right wing elements that took down Emily Wilder for her previous activism around Palestine are the same elements that are, yeah, trying to create fake nudes about whomever else. You know, and it's like th- th- this was known. And if you if you need any more proof, look at Megyn Kelly getting torn apart by, you know, Trump's trolls you know, and then still not learning her lesson, which was, that was just the most beautiful part of that entire story of being like, no, 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 it's not a right-wing thing. No, honey, it is a right-wing thing. And I think for progressives to try and not, you know, try and look, I know we like to, we hate bad faith identity politics. I'm with that. But I also think it's important to say, hey, we're all piling on Joanne Reed here. I know, I'd, you know, Joanne Reed dunks on Bernie for no reason. We have our critiques, but why are we focusing on the one black woman on MSNBC? Maybe we should like look at that. Or why are we, you know, there's some left-wing grifters who like decide to like go after, you know, a female journalist, you know, whatever. Like, like, let's not do that. Let's not like pile on um, and use our like po- our like we hate libs politics to cover for us. Well, simultaneously, you know, there
1: are definitely libs who use identity to buffer away from other folks. And and I, I've i had my fights with Joanne Reed where she spread extraordinary misinformation, falsehoods. So, uh, in ways that other people at MSNBC did not. Like, for instance, that the Bernie people on the your Reform know, Commission were trying to eliminate um, Iowa caucuses because they wanted to eliminate Black people.
4: Or what about the hand gestures? Remember oh, yeah. that? It's oh, yeah. a misogynist yeah. I'm sorry I know yes Joanne is <laughs> read is particularly annoying, but you know what I'm saying like I know but, what you're saying I'm that we saying. can't necessarily completely separate these things um but yeah you be conscious of them. I mean, it's not conscious. like that that's
1: that's ultimately it. it's like when you have a Congress full of Democrats, many Democrats who are constantly voting with the military budget and are uh, going on APAC tours and are uh, supporting statehood of Puerto Rico, and yet still get called progressives. I saw uh, one of the Dayan brothers post, you know, Ruben Gallego should run for, for Congress. We need a good progressive to run for Congress against Kirsten Cinema, Ruben Gallego. And I'm like, good progressive. The guy just went on, an a- I mean, he's like on the APAC tour. Where, where but, but no, but, but the, the, the thing is, is that the progressives who love to target AOC and Ayanna Pressley and Corey Bush for not being pure enough Meanwhile, you've got somebody in the actual progressive caucus who is is, 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 is taking APAC money and, and and aligning with the right wing of Puerto Rico and many other issues um, being on the, the committee that has to deal with um, the status of, of Puerto Rico. And there's much more. But, you know, why don't we target those people? Those people are, are actually going to be moved by progressive politics because they're moved so much that they're trying to pretend to be progressives while taking the money from the centrist and the more conservative interest because, like, that's their only way.
4: Yeah. Also, not to mention Nancy Pelosi, super sexist and, like, low-key. Like, it is not lost on anyone that when she attacks the squad, it's, like, mostly women of color. She's definitely scaled that back, but, like, we were right to point that out in the moment. Like, so, again, watch, you know some of these critiques of, of course, bad faith identity politics can often align with some of those centrist liberals who are like, ah, these young women of color have no idea what they're talking about. They're new. They're activists. I know. And you're like, do you know what I mean? Like they, she absolutely participated in that. Well, listen, she
1: knows a lot more because she spent a good chunk of her life raising money. And if there's anything that helps you understand movement politics and working people, it's raising money in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) In Pack Heights,
4: in your your particular block. Yes,
1: literally, that's it. (laughs) Okay, so I want to move to the future because thank God, there are
4: people who are younger than us who are just continuing the fight that we've all been fighting forever anyways. Um, there's, there's nobody younger choice. than us, no Miki. I just want to just put that out there. Okay. There's no yep. nobody younger than us.
1: Okay. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> I actually think I'm older than you. Shh. I'm, listen, I, I am embracing my age as I get older. I feel like as I've gotten, when I was when I was in my 20s, I don't know about you, I was like, I'm not gonna smoke pot, I'm not drinking. I'm, and I'm like, can I do mushrooms and do my show? <laughs> no, who's yelling at me for uh,
4: i thought something was weird we about I you on to... tuesday <laughs> dorsey's like lol 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 lol
1: <laughs> i've been talking about mushrooms a lot lately it's kind of a weird thing um, you've been
4: talking to joshua con russell yes. i know you know, you know, the
1: jammer. <laughs> you guys could only see
4: the, the chat. It would be great.
1: Um, all right. So let's talk about this valedictorian speech because this is this has been making the rounds. Did you share this, too? I feel like we all shared it. The community of
4: like progressive feminists were just like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, just because Hillary Clinton shared it doesn't mean I can't also share it. It was incredible, like objectively. So, yes, of course, going to share this woman's speech. Let's play the speech for the boys who have not seen it.
0: I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights a war on the rights of your mothers, a war on the rights of your sisters, a war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent.
1: Mm. Okay. Love it. But yeah, Hillary Clinton did, did, did share it. So is this like the <laughs> new... No, She's like she... say- Face. She's Look, talking a, about abortion. We can't talk about anything else.
4: A broken <laughs> clock, right? No, it's it's good. And and this Look, this speech could have been given in the '70s. That's what was yeah. most striking, and she kind of has like a throwback appeal. She's got like the long hair, and you know, and she's so, um, she's just so incredibly articulate and moving, and like she's got kind of this drawl that I'm like, when was this? Was this from the '70s? Because it's literally the same effing fight all the time, and in yet a couple things really stood out to me when she named if my contraceptives fail. Right. Now I feel like that is very different. You wouldn't hear a young 17-year-old speaking about being sexually active in the 70s and talking about her contraceptive failing and it's like, "No, no, no. Well, let's talk about it cuz many teens are sexually active." And absolutely a fear of going into college and feeling like you could be you could be raped or that you could yes, get pregnant. All That is incredible claiming of your own sovereignty, of your autonomy, of your humanity. And I think that, that you know, look, there are people in the comments, there's a lot of men in the comments who wanna be like, but at what, what stage should abortion be illegal? Not relevant, homie, not relevant. The only relevant thing is, are women second-class citizens and do they have control of their own bodies? That's the only relevant discussion. And if your answer to both of those things is yes, then the answer to the rest of your question doesn't matter. It's if this, if this mother wants this, if this person wants to be a mother, is the fetus viable? Will they get sick if they continue to bring this, this, this uh, a, a life into this world, right? I've been to El Salvador, they have criminalized abortion. They have criminalized it to the point where miscarriages are right. being labeled as abortion and you got women serving 30 year sentences. Right. You've got women who've just suffered a miscarriage shackled to their beds in hospitals. That is the slippery slope of what happens when you say that, yeah, no, we should create some sort of arbitrary rule of when a life is a life, because then the woman's body becomes completely secondary to it.
1: And this is happening, of course, um, in the wake of Texas uh, Governor Abbott signing into law six weeks most women don't even know that they're pregnant after six weeks. Let's just be really clear. Um, that six weeks, after six weeks, you cannot, uh, you, 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 you you I mean, it, Planned Parenthood's out of, of of Texas. We remember when that fight happened. Uh, this is, um, I just want to make it really clear though, because tying it to the political, like if we want to loop in the boys who don't understand this in the deepest way in terms of self sovereignty and, and body sovereignty or anybody who doesn't, um, Let's tie it to the Democratic Party, because I had this this little thing that went viral like four or three years ago or something uh, when I was in the Unity Reform Commission. And I said something like, when all of the money of the Democratic Party is moved towards five consultants and not towards state parties, we lose state legislatures. That's how we lost 1,200 seats. And when you lose 1,200 seats in states like Arizona, which now we know is blue, but I worked in Arizona in 2006 and it turned blue. And then we lost a governor and then we lost the legislature. And then what do we lose? Oh, right. So if you have a an ectopic pregnancy, you can't deal with that in Arizona anymore. you got to go to New Mexico, which is, you know, depending on where you are in the state, it's four, five, six hours away, maybe more, uh, if you have the money and the ability to do so. So this is the world that we're creating now when we don't invest in it. politics has repercussions and is somebody's fifth home in Barbados, some consultants effing fifth home worth this. And so what she was doing, she's highlighting this in the wake of the Texas legislature and governor, you know, completely like, like, like this is, this is, this, will, I, I hope it goes to the Supreme Court. Who knows what's, I mean, it goes to the Supreme Court.
4: Gee, I wonder what's gonna happen, for Francesca. No, but I mean, this is you bringing up the Democratic Party is really important in terms of political strategy and in terms of the fact that up until a few years ago, Pelosi was openly saying that, yes, you yeah. can be pro-life and a Democrat. And it's like or anti-choice. Let's not get it twisted. Let's be in the 21st century with our language. It is anti-choice and still be a Democrat. And the answer is no. The answer should be no, and and like so. It, look, it is incredible bravery for this woman in Texas to speak out about this. It gives me hope because I know that Gen Z, this will be a battle cry, and it won't be like the 70s, which was yes, predominantly white, predominantly middle class, upper class. This will be a multiracial, a justice oriented. You got young kids who've been politicized by Black Lives Matter. They understand maternal uh, black health rates in terms of. Uh, um, mortality rates and how black mothers are treated differently uh, and when it comes to either contraception family planning or birthing itself that is not lost on them but what you just said about ectopic pregnancies let's let's be clear that is when a a, a fetus starts growing in your fallopian tubes you can die suddenly because of that and so if you have to drive 4 or 5 exactly. m- hours to go to somewhere that will treat you that's the difference between your life or your death exactly that's
1: exactly it. And and, and just to, to piggyback on you for a little, a little bit, this issue of reproductive rights, I think the difference between the 70s era fight for ERA and, and reproductive rights, the difference here is that when you include more working class voices who are uh, undeniably more diverse, and some come from immigrant backgrounds, some are are here undocumented, many are people of color, women of color, um, and, and of course, we're talking about all women in, in many ways. When you include this, when you have this conversation around reproductive rights and just body sovereignty, I think, just to expand it a little bit more, it becomes a class issue. And that is something I think that the Hillary Clinton generation um, was in some ways allergic to, some ways just completely blind to. And there's the difference here. And I think this is what's going to make this a more winning strategy. So you have to include... It has to be not just intersectional in in, in the fact that it's racial justice and economic justice tied to reproductive rights and and, and body uh, sovereignty and body rights, but also the political strategy, because this is also how you're going to bring in people who are outside of the, the, the women's movement collective, is understanding that this is tied to a larger political movement. It's why when we look at Kirsten Cinema and we look at Joe Manchin, we should be listing off all of the legislation that they're blocking, that normie Democrats are like, wait, what, they're they're blocking the really normie bill on blah, 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 that's not happening. Just like when we fought the IDC, we attached all the IDC members to the normie bills that most normie Democrats would be like, wait, why is, is Roe v. Weed not, not codified in New York state? And we're like, oh, well, there are these eight Democrats who've been caucusing with Republicans. Well, there are these two Democrats who've just been holding up everything, including the filibuster, uh, ending the filibuster. So, uh, final thoughts, Francesca Fiorentini, friend.
4: Uh, I mean, final thoughts are, I think this is going to be a galvanizing issue. Sadly. I mean, it makes me really sad that we have to refight these fights, you know, but this is what it's going to take. And it's going to take the squad. And I think young progressive women and working class women like Cori Bush, um, like AOC who worked as a bartender, to lead the way, and the Hillary Clintons and the Pelosi's, like you're saying, need to take a back seat, um, and and we need to see how these fates are linked. That we that like equality and sort of first wave feminism in an inherently unequal system can only get you so far, can only get you so far, and so our transformation has to be much more radical than that, and I think we're ready for it. I'm, I am a strategic person as well. We're super ready to have a broader discussion of what reproductive rights means, reproductive justice means, and man, healthcare, hello, like, and Medicare for all. I'm about to say hello, somebody, because if Nina Turner is in, con- I mean, Congress, like, look, I'm, I'm excited for the future, I'm ready for the fight. Awesome. Francesca, what are you working on right now? Oh, dude, just the podcast. Bituation Room podcast every Sunday, eight Eastern, streaming live. Um, we've got a great show this Sunday. We're talking all about the revolving door between, uh, you know, the, the White House and cabinet positions and corporations. So uh, don't love, miss it. Love, love, Go check it out. Go check out Francesca's uh, YouTube page. It's, of course, the home of the
1: Bituation Room on Sundays. I've been on it. Love it. And you had you had
4: Joshua. On. Uh, we awesome. did. Anyway. We had a whole bonus episode. Uh, we had a whole bonus episode on with Joshua. We talked about self care, and that was really wait, important. Wait. I've got my... here. Oh yeah, it's happening? it's oh it's a ghost. See, look, here's the thing: when you live in a podcast household, everyone has to get a microphone. But when all the microphones are in the podcast room, <laughs> I love it. No, it's he all says, cool. Sorry. This is like, it's my betrothed. No. My- I know. I
1: wanted him to join, but it's, you know, and it's fun <laughs> Friday. He's not allowed on. He should. Next he's not on he today, join.
4: but he should be on. He's a, he's a hoot. Yeah. We um, should come on together. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, guys, listen to that episode. Uh, obviously, join Nomiki's Patreon, but also join mine, you know, and uh, we had a great discussion with Joshua for an hour about how the way the movement breaks you and makes you like hate yourself and others and then how you have to like reconstitute yourself so as left it's really is a- easy you just drink a bottle of wine <laughs> here's the cliff notes no? cliff notes according to Nomiki. psychedelics bottle of wine <laughs> lots of kombucha i'm so there with you, you
1: know me so well francesca also two hours of yoga a day at least 20 minutes of meditating i'm not two like com-
4: yeah
1: i mean it's like Yeah, I'm a little classic when it comes to that. You do yoga too. You get
4: it. Yeah, but after an hour, I'm like, I am going to check
1: Instagram now. No, no, no. Because I feel like after an hour, then that's when you get into the space and you're like, all right, all right. It's like getting there. Getting to the mat is the hardest part. So I have to do it first thing in the morning. If I don't do it first thing in the morning and if I have a cup of coffee, then I will never get to my yoga and I will never.
4: And then I'll just start drinking wine at 11 in the morning. (laughs) Uh, no? this, this sounds like you need to listen to the episode, Nomi, because we've got someone who's a uh, sober who's, and it's like, yeah, what's that life about? I'm, just uh, kidding. I'm Greek. This is not like, I'm making you're it like, sound like, it's I'm- normal. 11 a.m. Wine bottles. Okay. You're lucky. I'm not grabbing vodka. All right. Uh, I'm just kidding guys. I'm totally kidding as I'm drinking my water. <laughs> French. <laughs> oh my God. I love Fridays here. <laughs> I love Fridays. Francesca, you're the best. See you
2: soon. Likewise. Maybe in person, you.
1: hopefully. Yes. Thanks for joining. Ciao. Take care. All right, everybody. Let's do some shout outs. Uh, a shout out from Brad. Hello, somebody. Brad from our team. All right. We've got Kyler Sato Hello, Kyler. Uh, says, have you all seen the Biden investment into uh, West Virginia infrastructure and a just transition? He seems a bit better on filibuster. Not perfect, but, but some movement. Meaning Biden's a bit better on the filibuster, or Mansion is. I think they're they're playing some internal, some internal games. That's just what I'm thinking. It's like there's a little bit of like leverage, a little bit of pushing. We'll talk about it next week because I'm obsessed with this whole dynamic between Mansion and Cinema and Biden and Schumer. I'm obsessed with it. I think it's um, we really have to get into like the political nuances and the energies and what's happening behind the scenes. So I'm I'm curious what they're trading, whether how far. Biden's going to move. I don't know if he's actually made a decision. We'll see. I don't know. We'll, 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 I'll, I'll try to find somebody to come on the show and like maybe there's an insider who's willing to talk because I know a lot of them are right now. <laughs> uh, all right, who else do we have in here? Prairie Fire Kowalski says, "Hello, fellow feminists. Down with the patriarchy. Patriarchy is capitalism." That should just like, let's just keep saying that. The patriarchy is capitalism. So if you're down with down with capitalism, you're down with the patriarchy. All right, everybody, we love you. Uh, everybody in our chats on YouTube and Twitch, thank you so much for moderating, for getting rid of those trolls, for fighting the trolls, for working the algorithms. If you are not already a patron, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Become a member, become a patron. You get all the shows through audio of course we have our book club you can join us there we uh, send you the books and um yeah that's what the family looks like so sign up in all the places become you know subscribe do all the things have a wonderful weekend and of course always stay in solidarity